5: Thursday morning, the 2nd of December. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Legislation brought forward yesterday by People for Profit TD, Paul Murphy, will, if enacted, give workers the right to clean air in workplaces and in schools right across the country. The Workplace Ventilation Bill will allow the Health and Safety Authority to inspect workplaces to make sure that there is sufficient fresh air in enclosed places. The government said it will not be opposing the bill. First
6: of all, I want to thank uh, Deputy Paul Murphy and his colleagues for introducing this private member's bill. The government is not opposing the bill, uh, which seeks to amend the Safety, Health and Welfare at Work Act 2005 to provide for a definition of sufficient fresh air based on CO2 levels in the workplace as an emergency COVID-19 prevention measure. The government supports the principle behind the bill uh, and will work with all involved on
5: it. So it was all sweetness and light. Or was it?
6: I was a bit concerned um, in the final response there from the government that um, ventilation is, he said, ventilation is already addressed in the protocol and like kind of adequately addressed and so on. Um, and the minister English earlier referenced well the protocol and the guidance and so on. But like the central problem there is that all of that is optional, all of it. It's, it's guidance. It is not mandatory. Um, some of what was included in the Department of Education was also wrong in terms of pointing to 1,500 parts per million rather than 900 parts per million of CO2. But the crucial central issue is that you need a legally binding standard of air uh, quality.
5: Paul Murphy, who introduced that bill in uh, the yes. yesterday. Before that, we heard uh, from Damien English. The minister isn't uh, available to us this morning, unfortunately. But Paul Murphy, people before Profit TD for Dublin South, Southwest is on the line and uh, a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, did you take the minister at his word uh, he did say that he wanted to meet with you and he was hoping that you would take that as a, a commitment from him and government to, to try and implement the principles at least of what you're proposing
6: good morning michael um, and yeah, i mean we we need to see Um it's obviously good news that the bill has now passed second stage which means agreement in principle and um, we have been be- here before with other bills that ultimately don't end up um, being enacted Um so it, it, there isn't a guarantee that we're going to have a, the enactment of the rights to clean air in legislation whatever way it happens and um, but we'll see Um hopefully we will meet with the minister early next week um, and see are they willing to progress it and you know for us the the issue isn't if if he wants to raise points that this can be done in a better legal way in amending this section rather than that section, Mm. or even if it can be done by means of a statutory instrument rather than primary legislation, i.e. something that the minister can simply sign and it can come into effect immediately. Again, we'd be very open to that, but the bottom line point being we need to agree a legal standard for what is sufficient fresh air for workers, um, which points to either ventilation or and or uh, filtration systems like the the HEPA filters, which have been in the news and in discussions a fair bit.
5: In particular about schools, but they they aren't in schools. Instead, you've got ventilation by opening windows. uh, And I suppose this is the backdrop to all of this.
6: Exactly. I mean, we're two years almost, unfortunately, into a global pandemic. The science has been pretty clear for the majority of that time that the main way that COVID is spreading is through the air. Um, And a lot of the public health messaging, unfortunately, is stuck in the earlier phase of the pandemic where there's an emphasis and people are right to do it. It's a very good idea to do it, to wash your hands, to sanitize your hands and so on. But there's been an insufficient emphasis in terms of public health advice and then definitely in terms of legislation where there's an absence Mm -hmm. on the question of ventilation. Um, And to be clear, I mean, HEPA filters, for example, they aren't an alternative to opening the air. So our bill defines clean air as either air with less than 900 parts per million of CO2, i.e. it's stale air where air is hanging around and COVID will be hanging around, mm. or if you can't get it down under 900 parts per million, you'll have to use a filtration um, system. It's better mm. to bring yeah. it down under 900, but in some cases, you know, where you're talking about, if, if, if it would mean leaving the the windows open all day in mm. very cold temperatures. That isn't a runner for schools, and okay. that's
5: where the hypoxia comes in. All right, you lost most of us there, I suppose. Uh, with uh, the technicality of it, I take it that's a reading on a CO two monitor, is it? Uh, and uh, if you're below or above, uh, what's recommended? E- exactly. Right. So, e- uh, the I minister. See- the minister seemed uh, very dubious about CO two monitors, though. Did he not?
6: Uh, well, I you know, Maybe I, I, hope, I hope he's not. I mean, the government obviously recommends them. They, they have it's the one thing that they have done in schools, and they haven't given enough for one in every classroom. But he um, mm. seems to. So, CO two parts per million in air is a very useful proxy for the danger of COVID hanging around. It obviously isn't a measurement of how much COVID is hanging around. We don't know, but see, obviously, people exhale. Uh, Carbon dioxide. Mm. And so if there's a bunch of people in a room and there isn't good ventilation over time, the CO2 levels, and that's measured in parts per million, will build up. Mm. And if one of those people has COVID and is infectious, well then the particles of COVID that are in the air that then can be breathed in by other people will also build up. It's why it is crucial that in public transport, windows are open in pubs and restaurants, windows are open in schools, Mm. windows are open and or filtration systems. And that's where the, the filtration systems operate in systems where you can't bring down the CO2 levels, but the filtration systems actually capture the particles where the see, where the COVID would mm. be contained uh, within. So they're very important, and I don't know why Stephen Donnelly keeps talking them down.
5: Okay. Well, the Minister Damien English, uh, in his contribution yesterday, said there's already a, a requirement. Uh, on uh, employers uh, to ensure that uh, there is sufficient fresh air ventilation and that's under occupational safety laws and uh, the protocols uh, ensure uh, that they use CO2 monitors in the workplace. But he said it's also clear that a high CO2 monitor reading is not a proxy for the risk of exposure to COVID-19 but rather for identifying per-ventilation. Is there a difference between the two?
6: There isn't, and I kind of hope that he, I I did hear him say that, and I hope he just misspoke, because that's that's just wrong. I mean, all of the experts would agree that CO2 is a very useful proxy. Mm. Um, Again, that isn't saying you could have an extremely high level of CO2 in a room, and if nobody in that room had COVID and was infectious, well, then obviously nobody else is going to get infected. Mm. But it is a very, very useful proxy. proxy we know that
5: but he, he he was suggesting that you could end up closing schools or hospitals or other workplaces and unnecessarily because of co2 readings being too high
6: and, and that's wrong um so even take covid out of it people should not be operating in workplaces uh, in general uh, which have co2 readings higher than let's say 1500 parts per million at that point just the CO2 alone becomes a problem. You're going to have fatigue, headaches, etc. cetera. Mm. Um, it's also not just COVID. Um, other respir- respiratory illnesses, SARS, et cetera, obviously are spreading through the air. And um, like this can be, you know what I mean? At the start of COVID, there was a lot of talk of building back better and all of that. And obviously mm. we're, we're two years into it now, and we're fairly fatigued by it. But this can and should be something that comes out of COVID. That, like out of cholera and typhoid came the idea of clean water which is a benefit not just in relation to stopping cholera and typhoid but in general out of this really should come the idea of clean air hmm. which will prevent or slow the spreads and reduce the risk of the spread of covid but
5: also other diseases
6: and it's just simply a good thing for workers and students to have the right to clean air
5: okay another issue uh, that the minister seemed to be raising with you is if it's possible to place it Uh, you're proposing that the Health and Safety Authority would carry out inspections. Uh, That would be a massive body of work, wouldn't it?
6: It would. Um, And and, and the Minister said we have to be careful not to overburden the Health and Safety Authority. But I think the response to that is to recognise that the Health and Safety Authority is massively under-resourced. And So there's been a lot of talk of putting more resources into the Health and Safety Authority. But in reality, all that has gone in has been three extra inspectors since the start of COVID. There's a total of 70 inspectors uh, for health and safety. And we know that that was definitely insufficient, say, in terms of the meat plants. Um, and there's new new outbreaks of COVID happening in meat plants now, and their ventilation is absolutely a crucial issue. Um, so if you're going to have a law, um, you need it to be enforceable. Um, and that was one of the mechanisms that our, our bill does, is to say people can contact the Health and Safety Authority and insist on getting an inspection and also that this is one of the things that the Health and Safety Authority mm. should be doing when they are doing uh, inspections. And so we simply need to resource the Health and Safety Authority, um, as well as Empower Trade Unions, to be able to carry out these sorts of inspections.
5: Mm. Uh, there would be some buildings, uh, because uh, of their age, older buildings, uh, that would never uh, meet the CO2 readings, uh, I gather. Um, how would that work in practice? But uh, would- That's
6: where the the filtration systems come in.
5: Mm.
6: Um, If you can't reach the CO2 level for whatever reason, well, then you can meet the quality of clean air by instead using appropriate filtration device. Mm. Um, And and maybe just to be simple about this, I mean, we have a HEPA filter for our office. So it's a small one appropriate for a room with three or four people in it. It was, I think, 80 euros on uh, Amazon. And basically what it does is it sucks in the air. The air goes through a number of filters and then it expels the air again, and the air is much cleaner when it comes out. Yeah. And we'll have to change the filter every six to nine months, as far as I know. Um, and bigger versions of those appropriate for classrooms, for example, for 30 people, are, mm. cost about €300. Uh, Euros. So they should be in um, certainly plenty of classrooms across the state. Um, it isn't a massive cost, but they should also be in, in workplaces. I mean, I know of a lot of cases of COVID spreading in workplaces, Where you have poor um, ventilation, Mm. we should have the appropriately sized HEPA filters for those uh, workplaces.
5: Mm. It's freezing cold out this morning. Uh, And on the way in, you're watching young girls in particular with bare legs going into classrooms where the windows will be open all day. Uh, Would there be a need to open the windows if you had these HEPA filters?
6: Um, I I don't want to give the impression, and I think the scientists want to avoid giving the impression that if you just have the HEPA filters, you'll never have to open the window. But what you may be able to do, or you probably can do, is open the window less. Right. You know, less open for less often, Mm. and less, a fewer amount of air changes combined with the HEPA filter, combined with the heat being on, means you can avoid the current situation of teachers and students being freezing cold in order to get the CO2 out and mm. um, if you could combine a lower level of ventilation, but still some ventilation, it's still important, the masks are still important, mm. with the HEPA filter, then you can be um, safe.
5: Okay, and you'd think you could buy enough HEPA filters for all the schools in the country for €12 million? Euro?
6: Yes, I mean there is about 40,000 um, uh, classrooms in the country as far as I understand, and you're talking about uh, thirty three hundred euros for an appropriately sized um, HEPA filter and so that's that's where you get your 12 million
5: from. Okay, experts differ of course and uh, Philip Nolan seems uh, to be at odds uh, with uh, the expert committee on uh, ventilation uh, and uh, saying that uh, the HEPA filters uh, will not uh, provide sufficient clean fresh air for children in big classrooms.
6: Yeah, and I know John Wenger who was on the expert group on ventilation and they recommended HEPA filters to be clear, like sometimes you hear Stephen Donnelly say oh well our experts don't The the experts on ventilation in Ireland in a special group to NEPHIS recommended ventilation. But John John Wenger responded um, that Philip Nolan did not understand the basic laws of physics. So Philip Nolan was saying that in order for the HEPA filter to work, it would have to be located beside the person who has COVID. Otherwise, there's no point. And the point that John Wenger made, and he's an expert in this stuff, and he's a professor, um, is, is that it's like, it so say you're in exactly the same as smoke, and the NHS uses the parallel of smoke because people understand it. Yeah. If you're in a room with people who are smoking, and you're at the other side of the room, very quickly you'll smell the smoke because the smoke particles are coming over in the air to you, hmm. and it is exactly the same with COVID, uh, with the particles that would contain COVID. And so therefore, if you have a HEPA filter anywhere in the room, mm. the air is circulating and therefore would be going through the um, the filter mm. system and would be cleaned and would take at least some of the COVID particles out of the air.
5: And it, it's the same with smoke if uh, you don't open the windows and you don't have a HEPA filter, obviously. Uh, it's a bit like the old days in the pubs where the smoke built up and built up and built up until there was a cloud of smoke. Uh, But if you open the windows, obviously it goes out the window and that's uh, the idea with ventilation for COVID as well. If uh, you use the same type of uh, imagery to think of it as cigarette smoke. Uh, You've said that we should be doing all of the basics, cough etiquette and hand hygiene and all of that sort of stuff, as well as making sure that the air is as fresh as possible and also to wear masks. Now, the children in primary school are to wear masks this week. Uh, Do you support that? Uh, Because I'm not sure if this is widespread or if it's uh, been something that has uh, been organised on the internet, Uh, but I know uh, because uh, one of the staff came in to tell me that the school down the road from us here, there's a a few parents outside protesting uh, saying that they weren't consulted with and uh, they're not happy about how all of this has been implemented and so on. So I take it that there's probably protests taking place uh, at schools all around the country this morning.
6: I mean, I, I think it is a good idea for students, including primary school students, to wear masks in schools for the reason that schools are not some magic safe place um, and that a crucial way it spread is in the air and masks, particularly high-quality masks, um, like FFP2 or N95 masks, give people, they both make it less likely for them to spread COVID and they give people uh, protection. Um, I, I do think there is a problem with the government's kind of communication and messaging around this and um, which unfortunately undermines um their ability to get parents and students and teachers to buy into this, um, yeah. although I think people will the vast majority will in any case. but it, it is a problem that the message from the government for I mean months when we were raising this issue um of safety in schools was that they were saying schools are safe, schools are safe, schools are safe. Then last week the message changed to we we never said schools were safe, schools are simply a safer place. and then this week, We are correctly, in my opinion, asking students to wear uh, masks. So the government would have been much better off, just to be honest with people from the start, that schools are not some magical safe place. Yes, children are at less risk, but they're the the biggest unvaccinated section of the population um, right now. They're often poorly ventilated spaces. um, and, And therefore, we need to do everything we can to keep schools open. So that means not scrimping in terms of HEPA filters. It means educating people about how COVID Spreads exactly as you said, with the comparison of smoke in the air, and it may mean taking other measures in society as a whole to mean that we keep the schools open. Whereas I think the government treated people like children in, in understanding that it's important to keep schools open. We agree, but instead of just making that case, they then pretended that schools are just safe in a way that isn't suggested as anywhere else in the world, as far as I know, because there isn't a scientific basis for it. So I think. They've gotten themselves into some trouble because of not being honest with people, unfortunately.
5: OK, we'll leave it there. Good to talk to you, though, and thank you indeed for joining us. Apologies that the Minister wasn't available to us this morning, but thank you, as I say, for your time on the programme. Paul Murphy, People Before Profit, TD for Dublin Southwest. Michael
0: go Reed on,
5: on LMFM. FM. Now, it may be getting more expensive, or it might seem as though everything is more expensive every time you go out or a bill comes in at the drawbridge at least we're earning more, and we're earning quite a bit more. It would seem, according to statistics uh, from uh, the CSO yesterday, we're earning 3.8% more an hour than we would have a year ago. And we're working more hours, uh, which means that at the end of the week, we're earning 5.4% than we were a year ago. Good news, I think. Michael Taft is a researcher with uh, the SIPTU Trade Union. And a very good morning to you, Michael. And thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. There are significant increases that people are enjoying.
7: Um, Well, there's two things to be said. One, when you seasonally adjust the figures, uh, we find that while weekly earnings uh, are going up, the hourly earnings are falling. And this is, the confusion is uh, within the data, and the CSO makes this very clear, is that that we have a lot of volatility over the last year or two in terms of comparison, uh, simply because there are... uh, you know, large movements of people in and out of the labor force, depending on uh, the impact of the public health measures. So uh, we are not going to actually see the numbers settle down in any reasonable way or a way to compare uh, uh, over the last couple of years, probably until next year. But what we are seeing is, uh, is increases, uh, which is which is a positive thing because don't forget, most businesses uh, uh, have been operating now for the last six months. Uh, there are still some that are struggling. Uh, and, you know, there's been a huge increase in consumer spending. That's going to feed in to the uh, uh, ability of employers to pay uh, employees. Mm. And also, a lot of employers, uh, is, say in the hospitality sector, have simply had to increase uh, wages to attract labor.
5: Well, it's, probably no surprise that there's a huge increase in consumer spending because people are earning a lot of money on average at least they're earning a, a lot of money 83742 a week is the average earnings and that works out roughly at about 43500 a year
7: yes that's right we're we're probably uh that's that's a, an average wage we probably have a figure of about 3840000 which is called the medium, and that is the uh, wage at which 50% earn below and 50% earn above. So that's about, the, that's about, the, that's about where we have been at for uh, the, the last couple of years, but now it's starting to increase. But I mean, I, I would just make this point that's, you know, there's a lot of variation in those wages. Mm. We have those on very low uh, wages. Uh, uh, substantially less than that only about 400 a week 500 a week in the hospitality sector and those are much higher so while that average can tell you something it doesn't tell you about where you know, everyone is in the distribution chain
5: mm. Yeah, Well if the average earning is 43.5 thousand euro a year you'd have to gather that there's a lot of people who are earning a lot more than that if there's a lot of people who are earning a lot less than that
7: Yes, and we would find them in a few sectors. For instance, professional, scientific, and technical has seen that sector, uh, and that would include things. That, well, obviously, the scientific and, and technical. Uh, it would also include lawyers and uh, 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 lawyers and accountants uh, and those kind of professional grades. They were the biggest increase. They were the biggest growth. Uh, now again we don't know if that's just merely a compositional effect we don't know the volatility in terms of what we're comparing with the last year but that had the, the biggest growth but you will find the highest wages in the information and communication sectors uh, the financial sector, uh, professional and scientific and uh, a number of uh, grades in the public sector
5: okay but that means that it's not unusual for people to earn sixty, eighty 80,000 euro in this country No Right, Uh, and uh, I suppose there's some merit in that uh, the professional people uh, who've uh, a lot of uh, qualifications and so on and they're being paid for their expertise Uh, but when the gap is so great between the very low earners and the very high earners uh, and it would seem that it's not unusual at all for people to be earning €25,000 in this country not unusual for people to be earning €80,000 on the other hand It means you've got problems, doesn't it? I mean, for somebody to come up with a a thousand or two thousand euro in rent or mortgage repayments, if you're on eighty thousand, it's one thing, it's a very different thing if you're on twenty five thousand.
7: Absolutely. In fact, when we uh, compare ourselves internationally in terms of what's called wage inequality, that is, as you were just saying there, are those at the highest earner, uh, this is wages, uh, highest wages, lowest wage, we are actually one of the most unequal countries in the EU. We have the highest level of wage inequality, and that creates. That creates a number of problems, not just for the households who are on low wages, as you say, making rent uh, this winter, uh, uh, being able to pay the fuel bills, uh, but it also uh, imbalances the economy, because those people who would actually spend everything they get have the lowest proportion of money, whereas those high earners... Uh, uh, won't spend all the extra income that they get. They would be savers. So what, we, what, what wage inequality does is it denies a stable and resilient pattern of consumer spending by which businesses can plan forward. Uh, because all you need is a shock uh, and then all of a sudden uh, you have uh, high levels of unemployment among people who are already low wage mm. uh, and uh, you know that has the impact on business activity so it's not just the households it's businesses themselves that suffer from wage inequality
5: right. uh, and there's a very uh, effective tool for tackling that uh, that the government has in its hands called taxation Uh, And uh, when it comes uh, to the budget, uh, that's a a time where they can rebalance uh, the difference uh, by applying more taxes to the rich and less to those who are not earning uh, as much. Uh, But last couple of budgets, uh, I think it's been the other way around, uh, where the so-called squeezed middle on 40, 50, 60, 80,000 euro have ended up paying less tax. uh, And there's been no change to those at the lower end of the scale.
7: Well, yeah, there hasn't. Well, there was a little bit of change in the last budget, but yeah, by and large, the budgets have not been uh, fairly progressive. And especially when you then people go out into the real world with this uh, 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 and uh, face the impact of higher living costs. I mean, one thinks of uh, childcare uh, again, fuel prices, which will disproportionately hit low people, mm-hmm. low income earners, because they pay a higher percentage of their income yeah. uh, uh, on fuel.
5: Your your petrol Uh, or your childminder isn't any cheaper. Sorry? Your petrol or your childminder isn't any cheaper.
7: No, no. Uh, But actually, while taxation in terms of redistribution from those on the higher to the lower is one uh, policy that can address this wage inequality, uh, probably the most fundamental policy uh, is to legislate, uh, to give uh, workers, especially those in the low-paid areas, the right to bargain collectively. Uh, we find that in Europe, the countries which, you know, that's about recognition of trade unions, about bargaining collectively, be employer employees. Uh, in other EU countries, those with the highest level of collective bargaining are those with the most. more equal uh, wage distribution between high and low, because essentially collective bargaining, one of the great things that it does, it has uh, uh, the ability to raise wage floors uh, up to and beyond a living wage. And when you start squeezing uh, uh, shrinking wage inequality by building up from the bottom, Again, uh, not, only are, are a, not only is it a benefit for those households, businesses itself be, uh, benefit because those who are the high spenders as a proportion of their income, they're the ones making the greatest gains. So I think it's a combination of uh, a progressive taxation system tackling uh, uh, high living costs. Uh, and providing workers the tools uh, to be able to bargain up their wages uh, especially in low-paid areas.
5: Okay, that's a they have to bargain up their wages, uh, I suppose that's a, a decision employers could on some occasion at least take themselves without being prompted uh, but uh, we'll leave it there for the wow. moment, Michael. <laughs> Thank you indeed for joining okay. us. Thank Thanks. you very Thanks, much Michael. indeed, Michael Taft, uh, researcher with uh, the SIP2 Trade Union.
0: Michael Reed
5: Reed on LMFM. Now from one SIPTO official to another SIPTO official. I wasn't expecting to speak uh, to John Regan again so soon, but good to have you back on uh, the programme, John, and thanks for joining us once again to talk uh, about our minds, uh, because there is some good news. They seem to have the situation under control today.
8: Yeah, the news came out uh, earlier this morning that um, plugging of uh, the borehole was uh, successful and that um, they're hoping to gradually get back into production and get things moving, uh, hopefully in the coming days. Uh, there's a lot of damage, obviously, been done with running water for the last uh, 12 days. So uh, there's a lot of um, road repairs and, and, and normal you know, ongoing stuff that has to happen now. But yeah, the, the, the main water stream and flow has been uh, stopped and uh, it's now just normal. Uh, as water passes through the mine on a regular basis. So uh, it's back to normal. Yeah, it's great news for everybody concerned.
5: Or at least the first step on the road back uh, to some sort of normality because, as you say, they need to remove uh, that water and then to assess uh, the infrastructure to see if there's been any damage to the mine.
8: Yeah, and it'll take the guts of six to eight weeks. Again, they actually get back to uh, full normal operations uh, and, uh, you know, that's, that's the nature of mining when you, uh, you know, when you have that kind of a problem It takes quite a bit of time to get back into full flow so, yeah,
5: six to eight weeks is what it's uh, expected. I'm sure it's uh, dangerous uh, uh, at the best of times and needs all of the safety precautions put in place. And I think uh, there's a good safety record in uh, Tara Mines uh, for that matter. Uh, the company issued a statement this morning saying that no person has been severely injured. Uh, is there something to read between the lines there? Have there been some minor injuries?
8: There was one minor incident, that was it. It was on a a person's hand and it wasn't any lost time, as you will know. Um, uh, It's only uh, a need to report incidences that are, uh, you know, that lost time uh, is is part of it. And and there was no lost time. So it was first aid and normal medical assistance would be uh, what applied. So, uh, yeah, it was great to get through 12 days. And only have one incident of that nature. It's, it's it just shows you the safety standards that they have in the mine.
5: Very good. And uh, I was asking yesterday about uh, local wells uh, in uh, the area. That statement from uh, beliden this morning says that there's been no impact on uh, the external environment, uh, and and I take it uh, they're referring to those concerns uh, in part in when when they say that.
8: Yeah, and as well as that, the water that comes in, they make sure it's not just uh, pumped out and forgotten about. Everything is treated uh, and made sure that it gets back into the environment uh, or recycled internally. So uh, they're also talking about that part of it. But yes, I'm I'm sure they're thinking of the community uh, and whatever... Um, you know, I don't know what mm. the difficulties are around wells, but uh, as I said yesterday, they need to get in touch with the relevant, um, you know, agencies and, and, and the county council with regard to whatever difficulty is there, and if the. Tara Mines has uh, some way impacted on it I'm sure they won't be found wanting they've okay. always been good in the community
5: Alright well 6 to 8 weeks uh, to get uh, on top of, of uh, the work that needs to be done before uh, starting production again uh, what about your members there's what six, 700 people working in Tara Mines uh, will they be employed throughout
8: Yeah, yeah, and and that's another good thing that has happened. Uh, The 12 days, nobody has lost any pay. In fairness to the company, they've managed it very well. Everybody was gainfully employed. It wasn't that people were sitting around. There was uh, other, you know, all sorts of things happening. Uh, But obviously, again, as I said yesterday, there is a financial uh, hit here. Huge hit, really. You're talking millions. Uh, No production for 12 days Uh, And wages been paid throughout, along with the cost of bringing in a hit crew uh, and a specialised crew that that came in there to do that work. Um, You know, there's huge money involved. And as I said yesterday, I think uh, it's only right that the the state and the government would uh, step in there and assist. If the company seek it, you know, it Mm. should be there.
5: Okay. well, all in all, uh, we're going in the right direction. Uh, Good news. And thank you indeed uh, for sharing that with us uh, this morning and for joining us once again for that matter. John Regan, SIP2 Sector Organiser.
0: Michael
5: Reed Reed on on LMFM. Now, thanks uh, to Eugene uh, McGuire, who's emailed me saying, Michael, I'm confused. Or are the so-called experts just trying to confuse us? They tell us that over 90% of us are fully vaccinated, but at the same time, they tell us we need to get a booster. To me, if I'm fully vaccinated, I don't need a booster. If I need a booster, then I'm not fully vaccinated. Can any of the so-called experts please explain? Thanks uh, very much uh, for that, Eugene. I suppose uh, you call it a booster or another shot uh, and... Uh, It is probably confusing for a lot of us, uh, but uh, I suppose uh, that's the nature of uh, the thing, uh, that the vaccines wane. And it's a bit like the flu vaccine. Uh, I suppose everybody or a lot of people get the flu vaccine every year because at the end of the year, your vaccine from last year uh, doesn't give you any protection. So you need to get another vaccine. Uh, And that seems to be the case with COVID, uh, that uh, you'll need to get a, a vaccine. Possibly every six months, uh, uh, maybe the vaccines will improve in time. Uh, I think the advice, though, whether uh, it's confusing or not, is to follow what the experts are saying and to get vaccinated and to get as many vaccinations as is recommended. Patrick is in drada and he says, am I the only person thinking that parents who are kicking up a big stink over their children having to wear masks to school? Uh, have clearly nothing to be worried about. (laughs) Granted, it's not nice and it's uncomfortable, but children are very resilient. And if it has to be done for a short period of time to try to keep everything safe and help in preventing the spread of the virus, then everyone is going to have to suck it up, parents included. As children, you adapt to situations. And if you ask the parents, uh, uh, if you ask me, he says, the parents are the ones who seem more bothered, get a, a grip, people thanks uh, for that Patrick in Drogheda, I think uh, uh, most people are in favour of uh, the mask when it's appropriate uh, when the child can wear it and and uh, They would agree that there would be exemptions at times. I think there has been a definite problem in the way the government has communicated all of this and we will be talking about that a little bit later on. I think we might be hearing more about protests like the one down the road from us this morning. Uh, Liddy has been in touch and she says uh, she would like me to put a message out to people that it's not a blame game when you catch COVID. You can pick it up anywhere and that it's not anyone's fault. Yeah, It's very hard not to get it, it would seem, uh, at this stage, uh, unless uh, you're one of uh, those people who, like me, does everything possible to uh, avoid it uh, under all circumstances and doesn't really go anywhere or see people or keeps a very big distance from everybody. Mary works 32 hours a week in childcare, and she comes home with less than €350 PUP payment. She does not know where they're getting these figures from. This is the average industrial earnings of... Uh, Over 800 a week, 44,500 euro is the average earnings uh, a year in this country now. She says the majority of people are just above the minimum wage. Childcare staff have worked all through the pandemic. A lot of people in childcare have degrees and gone to college for four years. It's a disgrace that the wages uh, are so low. Thanks, uh, Mary, for that. I think uh, the average is like any average. uh, It's somewhere between the highest earners and the lowest earners. And I think that was... Probably uh, the point of uh, the discussion this morning, if uh, the average is 44,500, you've got to take it that it's commonplace for a lot of people to be earning 80,000, 60,000, 80,000, 100,000, God knows. Uh, That's got to be the case if there's so many people who are earning twenty-five, thirty thousand. 30,000. Now, yesterday... Uh, The families of people who are missing in Ireland came together meeting for the ninth national Missing Persons Day.
9: Raising awareness is also a major part of Missing Persons Day and I would like to encourage people who may have information to come forward, any information, even if it appears insignificant or irrelevant. It has the potential to be important and valuable to both those investigating the disappearance of our missing persons and the families and friends of missing persons. I'd also like to take this opportunity to encourage close family relatives of missing people who have not yet done so to provide a DNA sample for uploading to our national DNA database. New laws which were passed in recent years provided for the establishment of a DNA database system for use by Angarda Siakana and this assists them in identifying missing and unknown persons. The collection and subsequent matching of DNA samples from this database represents a key turning point in the identification of human remains in Ireland and already it has provided much longed foreclosure closure for an increasing number of families.
5: That's the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee. National Missing Persons Day is an all-Ireland day of commemoration providing an opportunity for family members and friends of missing persons to remember their loved ones and to appeal to the public for any information that may be of assistance to the Gardaí.
10: People go missing for many reasons, but when they do, it leaves a deep and open wound. And I recognise that this lasting trauma is endured by families and friends of those who go missing. A burden that, despite the years, does not ease. There's never clarity of mind when trying desperately to make sense of your loved one's disappearance. You continue to live with uncertainty and the pandemic will have added further to your grief. There's been the inability to meet with your, in your extended family and loved ones who have often helped you cope and manage with a multitude of difficult emotions. The restrictions put a pause to the National, Pers- National Missing Persons Helpline's excellent family peer support programme and you've not been able to mark days like today in person with others who, have, who also have shared similar experiences
5: where their loved ones are missing. The Garda Commissioner, Drew Harris, there was a first-hand testimony as well. Aideen Walsh remembered her grandmother, Barbara Walsh. Barbara, uh, mother of seven, went missing in June of
11: 1985. They had a little family gathering at their house, the local house in Roshinamaniach. And there was two guards, there was a priest, there was his brother and sister, Patrick and Catherine, and there was a few local neighbours at the party as well. The party went on till about maybe one or two, and then everyone left. We know she didn't leave. She had kids ranging from nine months to 18 year old. For the way that we heard about her and how she was as a mother, you know she wouldn't leave her kids. She loved her kids. And I know someone did do something to her. We just want to know what. It's hard because we never got to have her in our life. Not getting to know that person that was, you know, your mom's mother. It's upsetting because we never got to meet the person that she was. We only got to hear the stories.
5: Aideen Walsh remembering the grandmother she never knew. Barbara Walsh. Joanne Dorian continuously mourns the loss of her sister Lisa Dorian, who first went missing in February of 2005.
11: We are almost 17 years now without knowing where Lisa is. She had her whole life ahead of her. She was a funny, beautiful, very maternal person. We're very close as sisters. Lisa went missing on the 28th of February. 2005. She had gone to a caravan site with some new friends that evening and um, something happened that night which caused her to be disappeared. We have never seen her since. We were then uh, nine days into a missing persons investigation when the police came to us and told us that they believed she had been murdered and they were going out the next morning to arrest someone on suspicion of the murder of Lisa. We're in a very unique position of having a missing person, but also knowing that they have been murdered without ever finding their body. We live in limbo, but it's a different limbo to the normal missing limbo, because we know Lisa's not coming back alive. Lisa was my big sister, and I completely idolised her as we grew up. I always wanted to be with her. I always wanted to go out with her. I borrowed her clothes. We swapped makeups. We did all the the usual sibling sister things. We wholeheartedly try every day to find Lisa and to bring those people to
5: justice. Carol Morris remembered her father Albert Timmins. Albert went missing in December of 1980.
12: Every Sunday, we would go for a drive. And we'd end up in different places. We always had good fun days on a Sunday. And on a Saturday evening when he finished work, he always came in with the bag of sweets for us all. That day, he came home from work and he decided he was going to visit his friend in Gaeltock Park and go for a drink with him. And he knocked up to his friend and his friend was sick. And he ended up going to the Viscount for a drink. And that was the last I was ever seeing of him. It's a very painful experience and you have to go through it to know like people think oh, the person's miss, and the longer it goes on you just forget about them. You never forget about them. There's not a day goes by that I don't think of me that, you know. like And it is very hard and you go through different emotions. You feel bitter, you feel angry. It's just very hard because you think they're going through all these emotions that I thought like at one stage If he came home, I was going to kill him for the hurt. Like, I couldn't understand why he walked out and left three of us. Like, the brother was married, but he left two young children. Uh, Like, at 16 years ago, like, you weren't very mature, like, not like 16-year-olds now. You feel then, did he not love you? All the loads of emotions going through your head. At this stage, I just wish we knew. Even if we got a finger or a nail, we would be happy with that. That sounds terrible. We we just want to bring him home.
5: It does sound terrible, is not it? Terrible, terrible stories. And while families have to live not knowing why a loved one never came home, the Garda Commissioner says their plight is something that all of us need to take importantly. For the family and
10: friends left behind, I think it is not knowing that hurts the most. Establishing the whereabouts of a missing person or the truth of what happened is not just important to the families of those missing, but is also important to our society as a whole. As we've heard already, there are currently 815 people missing in Ireland, some for many decades. Each missing person is part of a community or belong to a place that they consider to be home. And Gardaí and Garda Shikana have a duty to establish, a truth, to establish the truth about those who have gone missing. To help those affected come to terms with it and to bring some sense of closure to these um, terrible events.
5: That's the Garda Commissioner Drew Harris speaking yesterday as part of National Missing Persons Day.
0: Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on LMFM The aim of all of the COVID-19 infection prevention and control measures that have been put in place for schools is to support schools to operate safely and prevent the introduction of COVID-19 and also the onward transmission of COVID-19 among the school community. Specifically in relation to the measures that were... Um, confirmed by government yesterday and guidelines issued to schools and I think it's important deputy because I've heard from you and indeed from others about the necessity to get the guidelines in place as a matter of urgency guidelines are required we did that yesterday but we are we are very clear in the guidelines and I know schools I have worse spent the vast Our, majority of my all in schools. schools. Deputy, I have the deputy. floor, Deputy, and uh, I am aware that schools take a flexible approach. We have advised that they take a flexible approach over the coming years
6: Requirements! The word requirement was used. That's you not flexibility. Floor, deputy, uh,
0: deputy, please. Yes, I, had, I do believe, had believe had I have the, the floor. Time. Thank you. And grandstanding on a matter of public health oh, for the health, love
13: of God. For
0: the love of For the love of God.
13: If I hear that for accusation one more time. the opportunity
0: to address the specific question, look, I would beg your indulgence in relation to there being an opportunity for schools to take a flexible approach as they always do on an ongoing basis. They have that flexibility over the coming days. The vast majority of parents are very familiar indeed from last week. I'm familiar myself that in schools that many wore masks on the words of the CMO last week. We are taking an approach that is advised by public health. It is a measure that is regarded as an additional tool for the benefit of our schools and we are implementing it.
5: The Minister for Education, Norma Foley, speaking in the Dáil yesterday. Her explanations, by the way, were falling on uh, the deaf ears of uh, the Labour spokesperson on education, Aon O'Reardon. Let's uh, talk uh, to Suzanne Connolly, who's uh, the CEO of uh, Barnardo's. A very good morning to you, Suzanne, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. You have your concerns about how this was introduced.
14: Yes, and thanks for having me on. Yes, absolutely we do. I I think it's important, and I know your listeners will agree with this, is that parents and children have been really, really positively supporting the government guidelines throughout this, this pandemic. And in Bernardo's, our view was that the government should really have followed through with really strong advice regarding the wearing of masks. And we don't understand why this, this, ex, this exclusion of children who don't wear a mask was something that, that, that the government has, has highlighted. Because As we know, there's been a lot of compliance anyway to to the measures. And we think that if a child isn't wearing a mask, that we should try and understand why that is the case and support and encourage
5: and talk to parents. When did you realise it was mandatory?
14: Only yesterday.
5: Yeah. Me too. Uh, I think a lot of people were talking about it uh, as as if uh, we all knew that it was going to be mandatory. Uh, On Tuesday afternoon the Taoiseach uh, was talking in the doll and we heard it played out on the programme yesterday and he was saying "Um, it will be required but it's advisory, advisory required Uh, and, and, and the language was very vague and listening back to it when you knew it was mandatory you could say okay he was saying it but he wasn't saying it and he clearly gave us the wrong impression. A quarter past six then. I think uh, on Tuesday evening, a letter went from the department to school principals uh, giving guidance which said that children uh, would not be allowed to enter class uh, or schools. uh, And the same for teachers, uh, for that matter. Uh, And it's dropped on people like a bolt out of the blue. Yeah,
14: exactly. Exactly. And... and well, we don't understand why was that necessary. Because people have been very supportive of, of guidelines anyway, and this this is something that that almost creates a punitive approach. And we don't understand why why the government felt it, felt it was necessary to make something mandatory, and, and that. And also, I think that the issue I understand of of the certificates, you know, the GP certi- having to issue certificates. I understand that you know, GPs don't see that necessarily as their role either, because teachers and schools really want their children to be safe and well. They want to encourage children to be at school, and they're well able to to have discussions with, with parents as needs be, and also as to make the decision when given a child's condition that, that a child doesn't need to wear a mask.
5: Mm, now, the guidance from the department clearly lined uh, made, made uh, exemptions uh, for mm. schools to interpret, uh, or, or uh, medical service from a, a GP. Uh, but from yesterday, according to that, and I know that it was being interpreted differently and some flexibility was... Uh, put into play, yes, and undoubtedly will be for the week. But from, yes, they officially, uh, children were to be refused entry to school if if they didn't come under any of that criteria. And there wasn't even the time to go to a doctor to look for a medical cert.
14: Exactly. And I suppose in Bernardes, I mean, our concern is that for some of the children the Bernardes helps, for, for the child to turn up to school is a great achievement because of what's going on at home. Because it's, it's a very stressful, sometimes quite chaotic situation, and it's tough for them. And then to have the prospect of they, they make the, they're they there, they make the effort, and then the school is in a situation where, where they're not officially allowed to, to, to let that child in. Now, I know some school principals have been out there saying very strongly, we do understand our children, we're going to try and bring our children and families with us, and we won't be excluding children. But I just don't think the government thought through this, this issue sufficiently at all. Mm.
5: Would there be a consequence for principals if they don't turn children away?
14: Well, I certainly, I certainly hope not. I mean, I was listening to to, to a legal expert um, on the radio, and, and he was saying that in fact, it's not clear at all that 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 that, that the the government has the legislative um, backup to this mm. because it hasn't been put in legislation or regulations. Okay. So I, 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 I don't know why the government took this
5: approach. Would you Um, bear with me for uh, another minute, Suzanne, uh, because uh, uh, if you can, uh, we'll go back uh, to uh, some discussion about exactly that, that took place in the Dáil yesterday.
15: We now have 93.5% of over-18s vaccinated. Uh, Yet one of the problems is when you look at uh, what's happening in hospital, uh, 50% of, 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 I said 48% of hospitalisations are still unvaccinated. Uh, 50% in ICU are unvaccinated uh, and 2% partially vaccinated. So you can see the huge, the point I'm making there is that community-based response is crucial. It also applies to mask wearing. And it is challenging, Deputy. I I, I appreciate that. and It's not not a place I'm entirely 100% comfortable with. And as, human, as a person, as a parent, as a, a former teacher myself, um, I'm very much alive to the different situations that I kind of play in different schools and different localities and so on. Yeah, time Just backgrounds, and, and I Thank think that we
13: have to be sensitive to all of that. Kelly, not being comfortable with it is one thing; not being legal is another. I'm concerned here. There's a big difference between primary and secondary schools. Many people would have followed all the guidance but would have an objection to this. I don't, but some do. I want to know that principles are protected. We have trawled and looked to see what is the legal basis to cover principles and boards of management here. We can't find any. It's on non-headed notepaper, there is no signature on it, it's a PDF sent out. So what is the legal basis here that protects principles and boards of management? If somebody is not allowed into school, how does it affect their attendance record? There is a legal basis in law as regards kids having to go to school. What happens here? Kids have a constitutional right to an education.
5: The Labour leader, Alan Kelly, and uh, the Taoiseach, Milholt Martin, that time around, uh, and uh, I think uh, the Taoiseach wasn't able to respond definitively to Alan Kelly yesterday, Suzanne.
14: Exactly, and, and actually, you know, Deputy Kelly is is correct. I mean, children have a right to education, and also there's there's legislation related to to parents' responsibility to ensure that children actually do get an education. And and exclusionism in school is a very serious thing to, to, to happen for any child, both in terms of their their overall development. And also in terms of our responsibility as a society to children's well-being and, and development. So, so I think what's being highlighted here is the government didn't think through this this mandatory approach that that they're taking and this threat, the punitive threat of exclusion. When well, in fact, as we know, most uh, schools uh, have experienced parents and children understanding the reason for wearing masks. Mm. And it'll be a, a, smaller, a very small, I think, minority who won't understand that and will need support in relation to it. And then obviously there'll be children who, for medical reasons mm. and for other reasons, cannot wear masks, which has been
5: allowed for by the government. For want of a a better way of putting it, um, I can't help but wonder if uh, the government hasn't been ducking and diving on this. Uh, You heard the Taoiseach there say Mm. he's not comfortable with it. Mm. Uh, Was he so uncomfortable with it that he he, he didn't want to face it? He didn't want to come out uh, and say it straight, to say clearly that it is mandatory and that you will be refused entry. I mean, whatever about it being legal, whatever about the merits of it, whether it's right or wrong, uh, or whether uh, children have a, a right uh, to an education or that masks should be introduced on a mandatory bit, whatever about anything, uh, it was ham-fisted in the way it was communicated.
14: I, it absolutely was, and it was very rushed, and I don't know why they couldn't have given a, a bit more of a lead in time, as others have talked about. But also, what I I'm, what I'm don't understand, and I don't know about you, is was this necessary? How did they know that people wouldn't, wouldn't just comply if they have. I mean, what, on what basis do uh, they think that people wouldn't agree to this if if the evidence was very clearly articulated and if people's concerns were laid? That's what I don't quite understand. Why did they have to go out and, and say this, say, we will exclude children if, if they don't comply? Or there isn't a good reason for non-compliance. Mm. That's what I'm... It, it, it really confused about it because as I said I think parents and children and schools have done everything they can to keep schools open to, to ensure that the children get the education that they need and now the, the government hasn't thought through doing something that that is, is causing a lot of, of upset.
5: We've a uh, number of parents uh, who've been protesting outside of uh, local primary school just up the road from this uh, we know that because uh, we've seen it this morning our, ourselves. Uh, I, I'm not sure if that's of any surprise to you, or if it's been organised on the internet, or if it's happening anywhere else.
14: I haven't heard. I, and I haven't heard of, of, of many protests, but I do understand why parents are seeking the government to to be accountable for for things that they do and to explain things in in detail and to answer questions that the people and concerns that people have and they certainly need to be clear about the legal um context in which they're operating and and what authority that they have to to do something that does potentially have a real detrimental effect on children, on mm-hmm. some children
5: okay if there's a legal consequence uh, do you think that that might be tested will this end up in the courts
14: i think it, it, it possibly will if possibly will and the government will,
5: will have to account for itself OK <laughs> thanks very much for joining us uh, this morning Suzanne Suzanne Thank Connolly you. is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Barnardo's
0: Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM
5: FM. Now thanks to May who's been in touch with us May says she can't believe uh, that parents are protesting outside of schools about masks how embarrassing is that for their children who have to sit in the classroom looking at uh, their mother or their father marching outside of the gate Uh, May says she was dropping her daughter to school yesterday and she saw one woman berating a poor teacher calling her a disgrace for forcing kids to wear masks the poor teacher was simply doing her job and following the rules to make matters worse the woman's daughter was pleading with her to stop making a scene saying she didn't mind wearing the mask please stop ma'am The poor child was mortified in front of the teacher and her friends. It was so unfair on the little girl. May says it seems to be that parents who have more of an issue with masks uh, than the children do, and they need to cop themselves on and realise that this is for the greater good. Thank you very much indeed, uh, May. For your comment to the program. Tom is in lab, and Tom and uh, Tom says children have a, a right to education. Yes, as long as they follow the rules, he says. Thanks uh, for that, Tom. Uh, indeed, uh, thanks to everybody who's been texting us uh, on the program uh, this morning. A- an interesting text that comes to us uh, from Jim in Cooley, uh, and he says, Michael, would you stop using sound bites to scaremonger? Just like the parasites in government. What is the... I'm putting on my serious voice here. What is the breakdown of unvaccinated people in hospitals? Come on, share the data. You have a moral responsibility to be transparent. Shame on you all. Thanks, uh, Jim. Uh, It's very simple. There's no uh, covering it up, Jim. Um, It's very, very simple. It's kind of 50-50. But it's the amount, the percentage of... Uh, vaccinated people compared to the percentage of unvaccinated people Uh, if you look at ICU for example right Uh, I mean if you take for example uh, that let's say just for uh, the sake of it that there's 10 people in in ICU uh, and let's say there's a thousand people in the population now that's five people who have been vaccinated and five people who have not been vaccinated. So you're saying what's the difference? There's a huge difference because 950 people in the thousand, 95% have been vaccinated. So out of the 950 people five of them have ended up in in ICU and out of 50 people who have not been vaccinated five of them have ended up in ICU. Can you see the balance? So out of the 950 people 945 people That's the vast majority of them have not ended up in ICU. And out of the 50 people, 45 people have not ended up in ICU. You are far more protected if you are vaccinated. And that is a simple fact of life.
4: An unvaccinated person has a 32 times greater risk of dying in this pandemic than a vaccinated person. Uh, That's that's very good odds. Uh, If you just want to look at that in terms of something that enhances your chance of life.
5: Life's a good thing. Um, Take your chances if you will, Jim. Uh, But that's uh, one of the experts who knows what they're talking about uh, instead of trawling the Internet for arguments against the science. That's Dr. Mike Ryan of the World Health Organization. Uh, Mag says, good morning, I'm in agreement with children wearing masks in school. The downside is that they're not changing the masks during the day and that could be a breathing ground for bacteria. There are arguments for and against Mags and I think you make a a good argument uh, against or uh, you certainly raise some valid concerns. Uh, Michael says somebody else it's Eugene actually Eugene says Michael ask any of the tens of thousands of people who are still on uh, the pub payment after nearly two years through no, no fault of their own if they're earning more now than they were a year ago thanks uh, for that Eugene all the windows in the doll open are, are they I think is what PJ is asking are they open uh, when the various parties uh, meet over the last couple of weeks were all the windows in the hotels open I, I doubt it he says Thanks uh, PJ. Mike Andrade says what science degree does Paul Murphy have uh, to be on talking uh, about uh, ventilation in uh, the workplace? Are there no experts available to come on the show? Well I take it Uh, There are plenty of experts uh, who'd like to come on uh, the show, uh, but uh, we asked Paul Murphy onto the show because he's a a lawmaker and he was introducing legislation which would make it law, and we heard uh, that the government won't be uh, opposing uh, that legislation. The minister, Damien English, uh, who we spoke about quite a lot during uh, the interview, wanted... Uh, to discuss it with him because he he says uh, he agrees uh, to a large degree with the principles of what Paul Murphy is suggesting Uh, but unfortunately the minister wasn't available. I hope that explains it for you Mike. Now uh, we've a very serious strain of coronavirus at the moment. That's the Delta variant. The World Health Organisation met yesterday and they were really at pains to stress that we've got a killer variant, the Delta variant. Uh, There is a lot of concern of course about Omicron.
2: The emergence of the Omicron variant has understandably captured global attention. At least 23 countries from 5 of 6 WHO regions have now reported cases of Omicron and we expect that number to grow. WHO takes this development extremely seriously and so should every country. But It should not surprise us. This is what viruses do. And it's what this virus will continue to do, as long as we allow it to continue spreading. We're learning more all the time about Omicron. But there is still more to learn about its effect on transmission, severity of disease, and the effectiveness of tests, therapeutics, and vaccines.
5: That's Dr. Tedros, uh, Adam Gabriels' Executive uh, Director, Director General, your pardon, of uh, the World Health Organization, talking about this very serious variant.
16: There is the possibility. We don't have all the information yet on transmission uh, in terms of if there is a fitness advantage, if it's more transmissible. Um, there is some suggestion of that, but again, it's early days. We expect to have more information on transmission Um, within days, not necessarily weeks, but in days. In terms of the severity profile, uh, we have seen uh, reports of cases with Omicron that go from mild disease all the way to severe disease. Um, There is some uh, indication that uh, some of the patients are presenting with mild disease, but again, it's early days, and we do have a surveillance bias right now in terms of the cases that are being detected um, there is also a suggestion of increased hospitalizations across South Africa, but that could be a factor of the, of the sheer fact that we have more cases, and if you have more cases, you will have more hospitalizations. So with regards to severity, there are studies that are underway looking at hospitalizations, looking at those individuals who are hospitalized, uh, whether or not they have this variant or not, um, and we're also getting a, a picture of some of the cases that are detected in other countries. So as the director general mentioned um there are reports of omicron in 23 countries we expect that number to change and it's important that information on these cases are also shared with us uh, so that we learn we learn more
5: okay and that's uh, dr maria van Kerkhoff. Uh, and of course omicron is now in this country a uh, confirmed case of that variant Yesterday, uh, let's uh, hear from the Irish man on uh, the board of uh, the uh, the WHO, the World Health Organization, Dr. Mike Ryan again.
4: Things we will do to contain and control uh, the Delta variant will likely stand us in good stead uh, should the Omicron variant continue to spread or demonstrate any signs of increased uh, severity or vaccine escape. So I would... uh, Encourage governments in Europe to look at the epidemiologic situation, to examine uh, the mixture and the layering of their control measures, the focus they have in finding those individuals, particularly highly vulnerable ones, as Sumia said, who are are highly vulnerable or at risk, and making sure that they are offered vaccine and that their concerns regarding the vaccines, if they have hesitancy, are addressed openly, and that we try to convince and persuade people to be vaccinated. Um, as well as beefing up and intensifying surveillance, uh, increasing and expanding testing, um, ensuring that clinical pathways are well-managed and the right patients get the right treatment at the right time.
5: That's Dr. Mike Ryan. Again, uh, let's uh, try and encourage Jim and Cooley to get vaccinated. <laughs> I hope you don't mind, Jim. Uh, he said, please read this in your serious voice <laughs> with a smiley thing. Uh, so I take it he, he took it uh, in uh, good spirit. Uh, but thanks uh, for getting back to us, Jim. Uh, uh, he says, Michael, thanks for the simplistic propaganda mats." I simplified it I think Jim but I don't think it was simplistic and I will read all your comments in a moment Uh, 95% of people in the country are vaccinated 5% aren't 50% of the people in ICU are vaccinated, 50% aren't, so if we uh, use uh, this simple example as a way of explaining it, a thousand people the population, 95% of a thousand is 950 5% is 50. Out of the 950, if there were 10 people in ICU, that would be 5. If there were 50 uh, who were not vaccinated, uh, that would be 5 as well. Uh, So it just demonstrates that if you are vaccinated, there's far less of a chance of ending up in ICU or dying. Uh, because 945 people out of the 950 wouldn't be an ICU 45 out of uh, the 50 uh, wouldn't be an ICU huge difference but Jim goes on to say he says it is simplistic I don't think that's simplistic I I think um, that's simple but it's not simplistic Uh, Jim thinks it's simplistic because he wants to know what's the age demographic I didn't I wasn't 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 comfortable with that Jim Uh, does it matter Um, are you suggesting that older people's lives are less valuable do they have underlying conditions, he asks. Oh dear. Um, as if somebody has asthma or something like that, uh, are, are, is their life less valuable? Uh, what's their ability to take a vaccine? Well, some people won't be able to take a vaccine. That may be about a valid point. Uh, but... Uh, I think generally speaking we're talking about people who uh, aren't taking vaccines who won't take them uh, he says how many days post-vaccine have they ended up in hospital please share a bit more than the usual snippets that's shared across all media channels if you are allowed to of course uh, and please read this in your serious voice thank you Jim uh, for sharing your thoughts with us uh, this morning much appreciated
0: Michael, Michael Reed
5: on LMFM yeah, I don't think any of us are, are comfortable with where we're at uh, with this uh, fourth wave of uh, the virus including uh, the politicians. Uh, let's talk to Elaine Lachlan, who's Deputy Political Editor of The Irish Examiner. Good morning to you, Elaine. Thanks for joining us. Uh, the Taoiseach very clearly telling the doll yesterday uh, that he's not comfortable with uh, the new mandatory need to wear masks for primary school children. Uh, but there's a lot of uh, politicians who are uncomfortable. Uh, indeed, there was a motion uh, put to the FINA Fall Parliamentary Party meeting last night, uh, which you're Reporting on in the examiner today 4TD signing this motion uh, which uh, are, uh, calls for a reverse to the cut uh, in uh, the unemployment wage subsidy scheme
3: Yes, this is the EWWS scheme that has been going on since the start of the COVID pandemic to help essentially businesses um, keep staff in employment um, and to ensure they're there for, for when they do uh, reopen um, so that has been cut, um, and that was due to to be incrementally cut as as the as time goes on and into next year. But the first cut came into effect, or, or cabinet decided that that would come into effect from this month. So. A lot of, uh, I suppose, anger around this, especially Mm. given the fact that the public are now being encouraged to limit their social contacts, and that has a knock-on effect on the likes of pubs and restaurants and even theatres and pantos around Christmas time. Um, So they are seeing footfall decrease at a time when their supports are also decreasing. Now, Michael McGrath, the Minister for Public Expenditure last night, at that private meeting of the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party Party did say that this would be looked at um, and the Taoiseach as well said that he would be meeting um, industry representatives later on this week um, to discuss the supports that are in place. Not a firm commitment now to go back on the original amount because we heard that that would cost around £400 a month um, to the taxpayer but certainly there may be a review of the cuts Okay. Um, that wage
5: subsidy scheme. It's the timing of it. Uh, I think, as you say, that's uh, annoying people. Is it the affordability of uh, some of these measures that are are stopping the government from taking action that they would otherwise take? Whether it's in relation to that scheme or antigen tests or whatever it is.
3: Well, the government has consistently said that they are money is not. Uh, an obstacle when it comes to COVID and that they've invested, as you know, billions um, in various measures, whether it's the PUP, the wage subsidy scheme um, and other even health measures, recruiting extra staff into the health sector that they will not be found wanting when it comes to supporting various measures to protect the country against COVID and protect workers as well against the economic impact of COVID. But at the same time, we do know that they have to cut their spending on COVID measures drastically in the next year. They've projected it will go from something like uh, 13 million to seven in the next year and then phase out as the years go on. Um, So that must be in the back of their minds, you'd imagine, especially the Minister for Public Expenditure. Mm. But as I said, they're not citing the financial costs of any measures as an obstacle at the moment.
5: Uh, and as you report in the examiner today the public expenditure minister was telling uh, the Fianna Fáil parliamentary party meeting that it would be reviewed and the finance minister Pascal Donoghue was telling uh, the Fine Gael meeting something similar. Uh, so the heat was on for both leaders uh, and uh, the de Leo Bradker was telling his party that he was sceptical that new restrictions will be necessary. He doesn't believe it's going to happen because the disease, uh, the Fine Gael leader says, is tracking optimistic projections.
3: Yes, and these are the projections that Neffet came out with uh, a few weeks back when they really had some really startling uh, projections around the numbers of people that could be contracting COVID on a daily and weekly basis before, up until Christmas. Um, The Dutonisda told that private meeting of his party last night that we are on the right side of the optimistic projections at the moment and that the numbers um, contracting the virus each day do seem to be stabilising, albeit at a very high level. And that was what uh, the, both the Taunista and the Taoiseach indeed at his own meeting cautioned was that while the numbers of infe- or the infection rate does seem to be stabilising, it's at an extremely high level we're mm. up at around 4,000 people a day um, and if it was to turn and we know that COVID can turn very quickly and especially in the context of this new variant that we would be turning and, and going upwards again at a very high base rate um, so that still does concern mm. them but it doesn't appear to concern them enough to be thinking of further restrictions right now.
7: Okay. Um, that,
3: again that all depends on Nephis. Yeah. Who are meeting today, um, and a lot can happen at those NEFIT meetings, and a lot can come out of those NEFIT meetings, as we know. Um, so, all eyes and ears will be um, listening in to that, to that
5: you know meeting. That, later yeah, on yeah absolutely. We'll all be glued to, as usual. I mean, it's easy to criticise party leaders, but you wouldn't do their job for love nor money, would you? Especially when it comes to making decisions around COVID. It's not just that it's a matter of life and death to some degree, but it, it's also uh, what it, it does to people's livelihoods, etc. And just when you feel that you know where you're at with it, the virus comes along and makes a fool out of you. Uh, people uh, won't forget too easily that we were supposed to be lifting all of the restrictions on the 22nd of October, uh, but the Delta variant then caused all of the problems that we're living with at the moment. Now we're starting to get on top of that, it seems, and facing into uh, another variant, uh, which uh, may supersede Delta and Omicron, could make uh, a fool out of uh, that idea about optimistic projections.
3: Yes, but one thing I think to be optimistic about is um, the move now to give uh, vaccines to the 5 to 11-year-olds. We had been told last week that vaccines that have been now been approved by the, the European Medicines Agency would arrive in here around the 20th of December and we'd see the first children vaccinated probably after Christmas or the first week in the New Year. Mm. That date has now been brought forward by a week. So we could have vaccines in the country um, for the younger group as early as the 13th of December, meaning the first group could actually be vaccinated the week before Christmas. Um, And for kids of that age, there's a three-week gap between the first and second uh, dose, meaning that then we could potentially have the first children fully vaccinated by the first, second week in January, which, mm-hmm. as we know, and the Taoiseach said himself, COVID has been going through the roof in that um, age group, um, kind of primary school age group in recent weeks. So there is a concern around that and that's the reason why face masks were also introduced. Now, uh, this the whole vaccine programme will be highly dependent on NIAC who have yet to, to formally approve the rollout of vaccines for the five to 11 year olds so we'll be waiting on that formal approval C is ready to go they say they've plans in place and that they're going to be rolling out an information campaign for parents as well ahead of that but NIAC, we know do take their time Mm. they're very comprehensive with their analysis before they give a recommendation and so it's all about getting that recommendation ahead of the delivery of those vaccines
5: Many thanks for that, Elaine. Good to talk to you and thank you for joining us. Elaine Lachlan, the Deputy Political Editor of The Irish Examiner. That's it for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye.
4: The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie.
1: You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of
3: mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
1: This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation.